Well, I hope you'll turn in your Bibles or on your phone, iPad, or electronic device that you brought to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament, a letter written by Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. It's our, our book of the Bible that this year we've been working our way through. So we started in 1 Corinthians 1.1, and we've been working our way through the book. And here we are in chapter 15 today. We'll finish chapter 15 this week, chapter 16 next week, and, uh, and then we'll begin our Advent season. So we're nearing the end uh, of this book. I hope you're able to grab one of these cards, either on your way in or way out, and it just becomes a meditation or memory card for you from the passage that we're studying today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if you remember and you were with us for the series, we did touch on 1 Corinthians 15 during our Easter season, Um, but we're picking back up in verse number 20 today. So I'd like to read the text. Uh, It's a little bit longer, but I want you to follow along because I guarantee you're going to find some interesting things in this text as I read it. Like as as I read these verses, you're going to wonder to yourself, what does that mean? Or what is he talking about there? Or what does this church believe about that? You're going to wonder about those things as I read. So follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 20 through the end of the chapter. When I get to the end of the chapter, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Follow along, please, as I read, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, you foolish persons? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then look into God's word together. Father, we give thanks this morning that victory comes through your son, Jesus. He died to pay the debt of our sins, but death could not hold him. In fact, he crushed death to death. He rose from the dead and offered life to all who would believe in him. And so this morning, we look to Jesus. He is our risen Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. amen. I want you to imagine the invention of a new machine just in time for Christmas installation in churches across the U.S. This hypothetical machine would have dual functions. Listen to the functions of this new hypothetical machine that gets installed in churches across the U.S. First, it would assess people on their way into church. Kind of like, you know, one of those TSA scans at the airport. You would walk through it on your way into the church and it would scan the soul of each church member to see if you were actually showing up in order to worship in spirit and in truth. The scan would scan your soul to see if you were a faithful worshiper or a fraudulent worshiper. But that's just one setting. There's more. You're like, I'm not coming. <laughs> no, there's more. You make it through the first setting. It, the green light stays on. You make it in. Whew. Oh, I'm going to worship in spirit and in truth. At least that's your hope when you enter. But the second setting is for people who leave the church. It's for these attenders on their way out, and it will check whether their attendance was merely filling a religious obligation or whether they were actually making relevant application of God's truth to their life. So as they leave the service and pass through the scanner, it would scan their hearts to see if they were mere hearers of the word or if they were actual doers of the word. Like whether you actually understood the implications of God's truth and were going to bring it to bear in your life. It would scan whether to your soul you merely received information or whether God's word actually wrought transformation. Now, if that machine, again, it's imaginary, it doesn't exist, we're all thankful for that. But if it did, how would it scan you? In other words, what would it have said about you coming in 
And then I wonder this, what will it say about you on the way out? Are you a mere hearer or are you an actual doer who understands and embraces God's word and knows its implications for your life? Here's Paul. We, we picked up in verse number 20. Paul has already in 20 verses that we've covered previously, he's already talked to the church of Corinth about the resurrection. But I wonder if the Corinthians would pass the scan. You know, at the end of the letter, when they leave, would they be people who merely heard what Paul said? Or would they be people who actually put into their lives God's truth? People who understood the so what of God's word. He's talking about the resurrection here. But I wonder if some people kind of yawn, like, oh, the resurrection, another church word. I've heard of the cross, and I've heard of salvation, and the resurrection, and that's just churchy vocab. I wonder if the resurrection and all of its implications have truly come to bear in your life. And perhaps Paul wondered the same thing about the church of Corinth. And so in verse 20, he's actually going to begin our section of the text by unpacking the implications of the resurrection. I'm going to tell you more than just the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to teach you about the implications of the resurrection. This kind of answers the so what. Do you realize Christians have gathered for about 2,000 years on Sundays? Do you know that? They've gathered on Sundays. Why do they gather on Sundays, the first day of the week? Well, it's called the Lord's Day in Scripture because Christians began to gather on this day because it's a remembrance of what? Christ's resurrection. Many of the first Christians were Jews. They worshiped on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. But when they became Christians, they wanted to celebrate Jesus, and in particular, the life that Jesus offers. And so they started gathering on Sundays. Now, all the way through, you start seeing from the earliest days of the apostolic era, people are being baptized in water, and they're being baptized to signify Jesus' death, but we don't leave them underwater. They drowned. <laughs> no, his death, and then we bring them back up to signify what? His resurrection, right? This is so significant for Christianity over 2,000 years. But it's not just a fact that we talk about at Easter. It's something that has important implications for our lives today. And that's what Paul begins to unpack starting in verse number 20. He says this in verse 20. Take a look at the verse. Just the blunt fact. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But right there, you need to ask yourself, well, so what? Okay, Christ has been raised from the dead, so what? And here's where Paul begins to show you the implications of this. And he's going to talk about positive implications, negative implications, and what I call imperative implications. Let me, let me show you those from the text. He starts by wanting us to think about the resurrection positively. In other words, there are some positive implications connected to Jesus coming to life after three days in the tomb. In verses 20 through 22, Paul communicates to us this idea. Since Christ has been raised, we have a positive guarantee of our own future resurrection. One of the positive implications of Jesus coming to life is that true believers will also be resurrected one day. That's what he says here. And it's bound up in this word, first fruits. Do you see it in verse number 20? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, Jewish readers would have been familiar with first fruits because when their harvest came in, according to the Old Testament, they had to gather the first fruits and bring them as an offering to God at the temple or before that, the tabernacle. They brought their first fruits. And we're not in much of an agri uh, agricultural society anymore. I mean, there are farmers somewhere out there, but most of us aren't. We live in the city. So let's think about this for a second. In my yard... Uh, my father-in-law has planted five fruit trees. 
uh, a cherry tree, a peach tree, an apple tree, a pear tree, uh, and a plum tree. Five fruit trees in my yard. Each spring, I'm hopeful that there's gonna be good fruit on these trees, and most years there is. The first tree, however, to bear fruit is the cherry tree, every year. Every year, just, it's when it ripens, the cherry tree ripens first. It's the first fruits. And when I see the cherry tree with all of its blossoms turning into these cherries and then these cherries growing and then these cherries ripening, I have this excitement in my heart. It's gonna happen to each of these trees down the line. They're all gonna bear fruit. This is the first fruits. We have this hopeful anticipation of what is to follow. In this text, he says one of the positive implications of Christ being risen from the dead is that he's just the first fruits. There's a hopeful anticipation of what is to follow, namely our own resurrection. Like someone who has seen a streak of lightning and then waits for the rumble of thunder, so Christians see the resurrection of Jesus and they wait for the future resurrection of all other believers. Why? Well, because he is the first fruits, the guarantee that others will be raised. Another positive implication of the resurrection is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he began this chain of events that would culminate in something amazing. Paul, again, he wants us to think through, what are the implications of the resurrection? What are some of those positive implications? Well, first, that he's the first fruits. There's others that are going to follow. But secondly, when Christ rose from the dead, it's almost like there was a domino effect that began. When Christ rose from the dead, he started a chain reaction that couldn't be stopped. And you see that in verse number 23. Look at verse number 23. Each in his own order. So there's kind of an order. And the first domino is going to be Christ. See this? Christ, the first fruit. He hits the next one. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then it hits the next one. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God put all things in subjection under his feet. What he's saying there is that the resurrection of Christ begins this chain reaction. First, Jesus rises from the dead. Second, he comes back. And when he comes back, he begins the end, the telos, the aim, the consummation of all things, the end zone, the goal that all of this has been heading towards. And that is that every power, every authority, and every enemy is put underneath the feet of Jesus. And when all things are sub subjected to him, then he defeats the last enemy. And the last enemy of humanity is death itself. He defeats death, and then he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. That's what started this domino, this chain of events, started with the resurrection of Christ. And Paul wants us to understand this positive implication. And what that means for us, I mean, I just want to pause for a second. What that means for us is that those of us who struggle with fear or those of us in this room who are crushed by different trials in life or those of us who read the news and you feel like society is just swirling out of control, we can know this from the text, that no matter how strong the powers of earth or hell or evil may seem, no matter how much the wicked appear to prosper, no matter how corrupt things seem to be getting, the climax of history goes like this. Jesus wins. All things will be put under his feet. He will defeat every power and every authority and every opposition and every enemy. And he wins in the end. Thanks be to God. This chain of events started with the resurrection of Jesus. It's almost like, you ever seen those old movies with dynamite and they've got the super long fuse and they light the fuse and everybody runs away? It's almost with the resurrection of Jesus, the fuse has been lit. I was reading recently about Winston Churchill. In 1941, uh, he heard that the Japanese had bombed the American Pacific Fleet 
And Churchill bemoaned this loss. But in the same moment, he realized the future implications of that bombing. He knew that because the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, the fuse had been lit. America would not be able to stay out of the war. They would join and ultimate victory would go to the Allies. He knew that that day. This is what he wrote in his journal in 1941 when he heard about Pearl Harbor. He wrote this. So we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, innumerable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated with emotion, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. What did he know that day? He knew the fuse had been lit and the end victory was certain. My friends, what Paul is writing in this text is the resurrection of Jesus. There are these positive implications. It means the fuse has been lit and Christ wins in the end. But he doesn't just talk about positive implications. I want you to see in this text, he also talks about negative implications. In other words, he postulates this thought like, okay, so what if, what if the resurrection never happened? What if Jesus did just die and stay in this tomb? Then what? And so he kind of postulates negative implications. He takes his train of thought in two directions. The first direction has to do with a practice of baptism for the dead. Look in verse number 29. In verse number 29, Paul's basically, he's, he's postulated, okay, what if there is no resurrection? What do people mean then by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If there's no resurrection, why are people baptizing for the dead? Now, here in Salt Lake City, this verse is the basis of certain practices that motivate the genealogical studies here in our city. They motivate certain temple baptismal rituals here in our city. Uh, Many of our friends and family members in this city believe that baptism is essential to the salvation of all who have lived here on earth. And because of that, knowing that some people have died without baptism or without the proper authority in their baptism, they enact what are are called proxy baptisms or they enact baptism for the dead. And this is the passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, that that is based on. And basically, the teaching is that this ordinance, they believe, was practiced in the New Testament church, it was lost, and then restored with the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I want to say this. Their interpretation is one of more than 200 different interpretations of this text. You say 200? Yes, I I can point you to this. I've got a footnote here in my notes this, this guy, Andy Nacelle, has charted 200 different interpretations of this one verse. And so the prominent thought here in our city is one of those 200. I just want to say this. There have been all kinds of speculations about what baptism for the dead means. Now, I, want to, I just want to say this. While I'm not sure of all that Paul meant with baptism for the dead, I am certain of what he did not mean. Based on Paul's other writings, so I want to encourage you, whatever your belief about this verse is, it needs to fit with the rest of God's word. Based on Paul's other writings and the rest of the New Testament, this verse cannot mean that a living Christian can be baptized on behalf of a dead non-Christian and somehow change that dead person's spiritual status. It can't mean that because that conflicts with the clear teachings of Scripture. I mean, otherwise, we would have heard that uttered from the rich man's voice who was burning in torment in Luke chapter 16. We would have heard him say, Oh, please, someone, be baptized for me. But he doesn't say that. That's not what you see in Luke 16. 
What you find in the New Testament in passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, or Titus chapter 3, verse 5, is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. That's it. It's not by works of righteousness that we do, even baptism. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to his mercy he saves us. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. And listen, you may be here with such good intentions, trying to do so many good things, and you're worn out. I can understand that. Because you're wondering to yourself, when is it enough? What's the line? Can I ever get there? What if someone does more than me? Am I better because someone does less than me? Oh, for by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Do you see, God has a gracious gift he gives. It's a gift of salvation. It's not dependent on your communion. It's not dependent on your baptism. It's not dependent on you fulfilling a calling. It's not dependent on you giving money. It's not dependent on you showing up for services. It's not dependent on that. It's dependent on the finished work of Jesus. My friends, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment And what that passage means is you have until your last breath to receive Jesus. And after that, the judgment. No second chances. No post-mortem salvation. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. What What I'm suggesting then is that the prominent teaching that many people have received here in our city about this verse doesn't match up with the rest of scripture. And I want to suggest some reasons why. And maybe you're here this morning and you, you, you believe in baptism for the dead and you root it in this text. And if that's the case, I want you to consider four things. First, notice that Paul in this text acknowledges the presence of this practice. He is saying there is a practice going on called baptism for the dead. But notice also he doesn't commend it or condone it. And he certainly doesn't command it. Do you catch that there? He's not commanding it. He's not commending it. He's not condoning it. He's merely acknowledging it. He's not instructing the church to do this as some sort of ordinance. There's no imperative here like we see with baptism and we see with communion. He's merely mentioning something that took place in Corinth. That's the first thing. The second thing I challenge you to consider is this. He doesn't include the church or himself in the practice. I mean, isn't it curious that in verse number 29, take a look at it again. He says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Why are people baptized on their behalf? In other words, Paul doesn't say, why do we baptize for the dead? He doesn't say, why does the church baptize for the dead? He says, there are people who do this. And he doesn't include himself or the people of God in that reference. That's curious. Here's the third thing to consider. There's no other mention of baptism for the dead in the rest of the New Testament. In all the gospel accounts, if this was a gospel practice, wouldn't you expect to see this in other gospel accounts? In all the gospel accounts, in all of the passages that offer comfort regarding death, there's no instruction about this practice at all. And I would just suggest if this was critical, don't you think he would mention it in some of these passages that offer comfort in the face of death? Here's the fourth thing I'd just encourage you to consider. Fourth, there's no evidence of the church baptizing for the dead in the writings of the early church fathers. Actually, the earliest mention of a practice like this, proxy baptism for the deceased, the earliest mention of this is in the fifth century by a church father known as Chrysostom. He says, he writes, so in the fifth century, he writes about a group back in the second century named the Marcionites who practiced something similar to this. Now You might be thinking to yourself, there it is, see? Early on, the second century, the Marcionites did it. You don't want to be associated with the Marcionites. 
The Marcionites did practice this, but Marcion was the like arch heretic for more than a century after his death. People called him out for his heresy. People like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Origen all condemned Marcion for heresy. And if you study his life, you'll know why. He took God's word with a penknife. He cut little pieces out. He didn't believe any of the gospels except a portion of Luke. He didn't like any of the Old Testament. He threw it in the trash can, thought he was a God of wrath, didn't like the God of the Old Testament. He only liked some of Paul's letters, created his own Bible that had part of Luke and some of Paul's letters. He denied the judgment of God. I mean, he was one of the few heretics that both the Greek and the Latin Christians on both sides of the empire condemned and did so for more than 100 years. He was the one who practiced this. That's the earliest record we have. He's the only one. No Orthodox believers ever practiced it. So I say all that to suggest that there might be another, another perspective to consider with verse number 29. And here it is. This is what I think. And you can say, oh, Lucas, this is one of 200. I don't like yours either. Okay. I think Paul was merely using this known practice in Corinth to make his point that there really is a resurrection. I think Paul in verse number 29 was saying something to this effect. There's this practice here in Corinth that some people do. You know, they call it baptism for the dead. Now, why would people baptize for those who have passed away if death means we're just done and gone? No, people believe there's something more, something beyond death. That's why they do it. If there's no resurrection, people wouldn't even consider this practice. Baptism for the dead. Now, Paul's arguing for the resurrection, and he's using the practice of baptism for the dead. He's not endorsing it. I, I was trying to think, like, maybe I could make an analogous argument, help you understand this. What if I was trying to argue for the existence of angels? Suppose I was trying to convince you that there really were angelic beings. Then perhaps I could say something like this. If there were no angelic beings... Why do some people pray to them? Now, scriptures don't teach us to pray to angels, and I don't think you should, based on passages like Revelation 22, Matthew 6, John 14, Romans 8. I don't think you should pray to angels. But I can use the fact that Catholics mistakenly pray to angels to make a point that they believe in angelic beings. If angels don't exist, then why do some people pray for them? I think Paul's doing something similar. If resurrection doesn't exist, then why are some people being baptized for the dead? As though there's something more after we die. He's using it as a rhetorical feature and argument here in verse 29. At least that's my understanding of the text. Paul's thinking about the resurrection negatively. What if the resurrection didn't happen? Then there would be no need for some of these people in Corinth to baptize for the dead. Here's the second argument he says here, the kind of this, think about the negative implications. If there's no resurrection, then why do Christians suffer and die for their faith? So moving away from baptism for the dead, he has a second question, and that's, if there is no resurrection, then why would people suffer and die for a belief in something after death? In verses 30 through 32, he recounts the danger and death threats that he faced. Take a look at the text. He says in verse number 30, and, and in context, he's trying to say, if there was no resurrection, then why are we in danger every hour? He says, I die every day. What gain? Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink. In other words, if there is no resurrection, then live like a hedonist. If all you have are these 80 years here to live, and live it to the full without restraint because there's nothing afterwards. But Paul is saying, no, there is something more. And that's why I'm willing to suffer and that's why other Christians are willing to die. What that means maybe for some of us is that there may be times when we're facing difficulty for our faith where we have to make sacrificial decisions based on what we believe there may be seasons where we wonder, is it worth it? And Paul says, there is a hope of future resurrection. And that, my friends, should steady our hearts. 
The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, those are eternal. We do not lose heart. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. I do not lose heart, though my outward man is perishing. My inward man is being renewed day by day. He says this, knowing that he who raised our Lord Jesus will raise us also. If the resurrection never happened, then go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it's done. But there is a resurrection. And it makes your suffering, it makes your, your, your investment, it makes the following of your faith worth it. My friends, the treasures of heaven matter more than the pleasures of earth, and it's because of the resurrection. Paul wants us to think about these implications, positively, negatively, and imperatively. I use the word imperatively because there are these three commands or three imperatives connected to the resurrection of Christ in verses 33 and 34. Take a look at verses 33 and 34. I want to just identify the three imperatives. Do not be deceived. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. Do you see those there? What Paul is saying here is because of the resurrection, you have to stop being deceived. Stop being deceived by people who would negatively influence you by denying the resurrection. Don't be deceived by theories like annihilationism or theories like universalism. We don't just cease to exist when we die. We're not all automatically gonna end up in heaven one day. That's not the teaching of scripture. There is a resurrection. Don't be deceived by those who deny the truth. He says, wake up or sober up. Come to your senses. If you are living life, friend, here's, here's what, here, if you're living life as though there's no resurrection, if you're living life as though this is all there is, so live it up, do whatever you want, party hardy, if you're living life that way, Paul says, wake up. That's a dream world. There is a resurrection. So his final imperative is, so stop sinning. Now, this is important for the church of Corinth. And if you write in your Bible, you could write the reference, 1 Corinthians 6, 13 and 14. Stop sin, sinning. Paul is likely referring back to something he's already taught the church. There were people who were treating the body as though it was just an outer shell that gets thrown into the trash can of a grave when you die and you're done. The body is just a husk. Don't worry about what happens with the body. It's the soul that's most important. And the Corinthians were living that way. And in chapter six, they were living in immorality because they thought the body was nothing. Well, food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. Do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter. It's only your soul that matters. So they're acting immorally. And Paul says, you need to stop sinning because the body is not just a husk. One day, it's gonna be raised from the dead. So here in this passage, all of this to say, Paul is trying to help us understand the implications of the resurrection. Christ is raised from the dead, fact, but there are positive, negative, and imperative implications of that. Now, he doesn't stop there. Quickly, I want to show you two last things. He talks about the implications of the resurrection. But the next thing he does is he talks about the nature of the resurrection because there were questions that people had. They're wondering, and maybe you've wondered about this. Oh, okay, the resurrection, we're gonna be raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead. But what kind of body am I gonna have if I'm raised from the dead? Have you ever wondered that question? What's the resurrection going to be like? And so Paul wants to talk about the nature of the resurrection. And you see that question in verse 35. Look at verse 35. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So I want to talk about that second question. With what kind of body do they come? What is the nature of this resurrection? And so Paul is going to use some analogies and some references to the Old Testament to describe the kind of body we will have in the resurrection. Here's how he's going to describe it. In verses 35 through 38, he's going to use an analogy of seeds and plants. So again, he's trying to answer this question, what kind of body are you going to have in the resurrection? If you're a Christian, Christ raises you from the dead one day, what kind of body are you going to have? And he's going to be like, well, it's going to be more like a plant than a seed. And you're thinking to yourself, that's not very helpful. Okay, let me, let me explain. Paul's using this analogy because there were probably some in Corinth who were a little bit snarky. 
about this resurrection. They sneered at the idea. They're, they're looking at Paul saying, Paul, so you're telling us that God is going to give us resurrected bodies and somehow they're going to have continuity with our fragile earthly bodies, yet they're going to be different in positive and powerful ways. What are you smoking, Paul? Some people are probably feeling that way. Maybe not in those words. That's just my translation. So Paul replies something like this. Is this such a hard concept for you to grasp? Take a look at the wheat fields around you. We put a seed into the ground and we bury it. And in its quote unquote dying, it produces new life. Death produces life. You guys are sneering at me. You're looking suspiciously at me about this idea of the resurrection, telling me I've lost my mind because you can't even believe that life could come from death. Look at the wheat fields. You take this seed, you bury it like death, <laughs> put it in the ground. And voila, life, something beautiful, something better, something glorious comes from those seeds. He says, that's the way it's going to be in the resurrection. You take this seed that is small and hard and round, and you end up with a stalk that's tall and thin and golden and wavy, and it's beautiful. He's saying this, the oak tree is related to the acorn, even though it doesn't much resemble it. The butterfly is related to the caterpillar, though they don't look alike. Bodies die and rise again to new and more glorious life. This death life principle is common for, for nature, and so it should be reasonable for us when we think about the resurrection of believers. In the resurrection, Christians, that's what Paul's saying here in, in verses 35 through 38, Christians are gonna be more like a plant than a seed. But not only that, he says, in the resurrection, the supernatural body is what we're going to have rather than a natural one. And you see this in verses 39 through 42. Notice verse 39, he's talking about not all flesh is the same. If you remember from my reading, he talks about humans and animals and birds and heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the sun and the moon and stars. He's talking about all these different things. He's, he's talking about different animals and astronomical bodies and he's describing how they're different compositions. In this analogy, he's trying to explain that different bodies are suited to their various environments. Some bodies are suited to land. Some are suited to, to water. Some are suited to space. Different bodies are suited for their various environments. And what he's saying here is that our earthly bodies must be refitted for our heavenly, eternal existence. We can understand different bodies and different splendors when we look at fish versus land animals. You know the difference. Listen, if a plate comes to you at lunch today, you know the difference if this is a fish fillet or if this is a steak. You know the difference because the flesh is different. He's saying, you understand these differences. Well, there's going to be differentiation in the resurrection. If you can understand that with animals and astronomy, then understand that with the resurrection. Now, this is important because during Paul's time, people had different worldviews. For instance, the Greeks thought of the resurrection as a curse, not a blessing. If you would go to a Greek person, they'd say, that's foolish. I don't want to be bound to the prison of my body again. The Greeks thought to themselves, the good news of death is that the soul is liberated forever. It doesn't have to be confined to a decaying shell. The Greeks thought of the resurrection as a curse. The, in Judaism, those who did believe in the resurrection, because not all Jews did, but those who did believe in the resurrection, they thought that the body would be raised identically with the one who had died. You see this in, 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 in Jewish writings like the Apocalypse of Baruch. The author says this, the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead. So he's talking about resurrection. But listen to what he says. It shall make no change in their form. It has received, as it has received, so it shall be restored. So Jews who did believe in the resurrection, they thought you'd come back exactly like you were. And Paul's saying, the Greeks are wrong because there is going to be a resurrection. And the Jews who believe we're coming back identically as we, as we went into the ground, they're wrong as well. Because actually, we're going to be changed. We're not going to have a natural body. We're going to have a supernatural body. We're not going to be floating around like spirits or ghosts. 
without a body, but we're also not going to be identical to what we were when we died. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone laying in a coffin, but thanks be to God that we're not going to be resurrected to look like that. Thanks be to God. No, Paul says there's going to be something that changes. Look at verse 42. Follow along, verse 42. What is sown is perishable. But look what he says. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown, a natural body, is raised a spiritual or a supernatural spirit-empowered body. Paul is saying that this earthly body, the one that we're in right now, this earthly body will die. But the resurrected body will never die. This earthly body is lowly, but the resurrected body is glorious. This earthly body is weak. We suffer from injury and illness and fatigue and eventual death, but the heavenly body is powerful and strong and will never pass away. In the resurrection, we're more like a plant than a seed. We're gonna have a supernatural body not a natural one. And the last thing he says about the nature of the resurrection is that we're gonna be more like the living Christ than like the decaying Adam. In verses 45 through 49, he contrasts the first Adam, you know, the one we remember, Adam and Eve, he contrasts the first Adam with the last Adam, meaning Christ, the first head of humanity with a saving and eternal head of humanity. He says in the resurrection, we're gonna be more like Christ then we are going to be like Adam. Now, I want you to admit this morning that our current bodies decay. I mean, if you come to that conclusion, some of you are young, you haven't come to the truth yet. <laughs> but fact, our bodies decay. And if you doubt it, just smell your breath in the morning. <laughs> Something died in there. <laughs> All right? Our present bodies decay, we have aches and pains, we need to shower, we bruise, we break, we get sick. In so many ways, we bear the image of Adam. We are under the pain of the curse, but Paul explains that there is a day that is coming when we will be thoroughly transformed. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, there's coming a day when we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. My friends, one day, Resurrected believers will be imperishable. In other words, you'll have no expiration date. One day, resurrected believers will be unbreakable. It means no casts, no re knee replacements, none of that. One day, you're going to be unbreakable. One day, you're going to be impervious to disease. No more COVID masks, no more hospital stays. One day, you're going to be untouched by the ravages of time. That means no more wrinkles, no more caskets will be raised in glory and power, will be free from the limitations of weakness. I mean, that is an amazing thing. Andrew Wilson, one of the commentators on this text, he says, just think about the body of our resurrected Jesus for a second. He, he was transformed in his physicality. He could appear in a locked room. In other words, the doors were closed, but he could appear. Do you remember that in the Gospel of John? Here's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. He would never die but he could still hug his friends and enjoy a barbecue on the beach. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Think about that. What Paul is getting at here is that we'll be like an oak tree rather than an acorn. We'll have a body suited for eternity rather than one that expires after 80 years. We will resemble the living Christ more than the decaying Adam, and that is the nature of the resurrection. The implications, the nature, and I close with this, the means of the resurrection, the means. Maybe you're here this morning, you're wondering, okay, so how is this all gonna happen? The how, okay, what are the means of the resurrection? Verse 35, some will ask, how? Okay, how, how are the dead raised? How is this whole resurrection thing going to unfold? Well, my friends, there's a sequence of events that Paul lays out in this passage as he brings it to a close. He explains that there's going to be a signal and sudden return of Christ. You see that in verse number 52. Take a look at verse 52. In verse 52, it says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, now look at this, this next phrase, at the last trumpet, and then he says it again, for the trumpet will sound. Now, some of you are looking at that, okay, trumpets, what is this talking about? Well, the trumpet 
was this signal. It's this last signal that the events of earth are coming to their intended end. The last trumpet will sound. It will, it will, it will signal to all of humanity the end has come, and it will call the dead to rise. Like a bell called a butler in an old English estate, so the trump of God will call all dead believers to rise from their graves. The trumpet will sound and Christ will return. Now, those two are linked, not in this passage, but in a passage that Paul wrote just a few years before this. You see, just about three or four years before he wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we see this same idea, resurrection, the trumpet, the return of Christ, and it's all brought together. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of our Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's going to be a signal and a sudden return of Jesus. That's what you're waiting for, the sound of the trumpet and the coming of Christ, signaling to the dead in Christ that they must rise. But the second thing that Paul unpacks in our text is that then there will be this immediate and radical, radical transformation of our bodies. So he's not just going to signal the trumpet, come back, tell everybody who's dead to rise, and you see all this decay and decomposition. No, no, no. There's going to be this amazing transformation that occurs, an immediate and radical transformation. Now, the fact is, friends, my natural body wouldn't be suited for life on Mars. Did you know that? And I just looked up how cold it is on Mars. It gets to negative 220 degrees Fahrenheit on Mars. My, I have been in negative 38 degrees up in Alaska. Very cold. I'm not gonna make it in negative 220 and neither will you. My natural body couldn't make it there. Not only that, but the, the environment is 96% carbon dioxide. If you didn't have a spacesuit, you'd be dead in an instant. My natural body is not suited for life on Mars. Neither are our earthly bodies suited for the eternal kingdom of God. That's the argument that Paul is making in verse number 50. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50, this is what he says. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your, your, your natural earthly body is not suitable for the eternal kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Something has to change. And so he says two times in verses 51 and 52, we shall be changed. We shall all be changed. There's going to be this immediate and radical change that happens in our bodies. You see the immediate nature of it? He says, in a moment. The Greek word there underlying that is atomos, from which we get the word atom, the smallest thing, the, the undividable thing, right? He said, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, these dead in Christ are going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. And the way that they're transformed is by means of addition. They're going to put something on. You see that in verse number 53. The perishable body must put on, some of your translations say, must be clothed with. The word means to put on or to be clothed with. Verse 53, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. This earthly body needs to have something put on. We need the imperishable, we need the immortal put on. And he says that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a signal and sudden return of Christ. There's going to be an immediate and radical transformation of our bodies. And it all ends this way. Scripture is fulfilled and death is defeated forever. That's the end of the passage. That's how this whole thing plays out. How does the resurrection happen? Well, there's going to be a sound of a trumpet in Christ's return. And then the dead will rise. They'll be immediately transformed. And the scriptures will be fulfilled, putting an end to death forever. 
What Paul does at the end of our text here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he quotes Isaiah chapter 25 and Hosea chapter 13. So that's where you get those little, little sections. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, your, your sting? He's quoting the Old Testament there. He's saying, it's going to be fulfilled. Death, as one author put it, the mouth that swallows everything and is never satisfied will itself be swallowed up in victory one day. Death will be swallowed up forever. And so, my friends, instead of fearing death, instead of spending all of your resources on creams and lotions trying to escape it, instead of trying to hold it at bay, my friend, if you're a believer, you can defy death. Because of the resurrection, my friends, you can look the grim reaper in the eye and you can say this, you aren't going to sting anyone anymore. You've been beat for good. Oh, death, where is your victory? Christ is risen indeed. Oh, death, where is your sting? The grave can't hold me. My friends, isn't that a comfort for those of us who believe? The fact is, we look forward to a day, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we look forward to a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore because Christ has won the victory. I don't know if you've ever stood at the grave of a loved one, but if you have, then you know the weightiness of loss. I grew up basically every birthday, uh, every Thanksgiving, like we're going to celebrate next week, every Christmas, nearly every one of those were with my dad's parents, my grandparents on my father's side. They lived four hours away where my other grandparents lived halfway across the country back when flight was a whole lot less accessible for poor people, a uh, family of five. We didn't make that trip very often. It was usually close by to my grandparents who lived four hours away. We spent all these holidays with them. They would drive up for our birthdays. I was very close uh, to these grandparents. And then within one year, both of them died. And my, and my grandfather went first. He had Parkinson's disease. Um, it, just, it just got worse and worse. I, mean, I remember him not being able to turn the handle uh, of a door. His hand would shake so bad it would be so hard for him to do that. He couldn't get the top off of a bottle. Um, he began to struggle with speech and finally with swallowing. He was bed-bound. He felt like he lost his dignity. You know, it was just very sad. And, and then one day he died. And I remember when that happened, I was, you know, emotionally paralyzed. That is until I stood at the graveside. You know, I made it through the whole funeral, all leading up. There wasn't a tear. And then I stood at the graveside and I watched this casket descend into the dirt. And it felt like death had won. Have you ever been there? Have you ever stood in those places where this person who you love, this person you're going to miss next week, it seems like death won. But as I stood there and grief came over me like a tidal wave and the tears rolled down my face, I had to remind myself that the grave did not win because this wasn't the end of my grandfather's story. You see, in his 70s, he was hospital bound and there was a pastor named Mike Choden who visited him in the hospital. And Mike Choden shared the gospel, the good news that Jesus forgives sinners like us through his death in our place. And then Christ rose from the dead to offer life, eternal life to all who believe. See, my grandfather's story was not done. Death did not win because in his 70s, my grandfather in a hospital called on the name of the Lord, believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and was saved from his sin. And so while tears ran down my eyes, my heart was being comforted with the truth that death doesn't get the last laugh when it comes to believers. The tyranny of the grave was broken by Jesus. Actually, for my grandfather, the grave isn't the end of his story. Life is the end of his story. Thanks be to God, verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so for those of you in this room who have lost believing loved ones, someday soon, we will experience the end of death and the enjoyment of resurrection life. And let us comfort one another with these things. But for those of you in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus, who have not placed your faith in him and him alone, those of you in this room who only have religion but you have no relationship with a living Savior, then death still reigns over you. There is no promise of victory for your future unless you repent and turn from your sins and receive the free gift of life in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You're not gonna get to the Father through your works. You're not gonna get to the Father through your church. You're not gonna get to the Father any other way except through Jesus. When you turn to him, then he looks at you and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, Paul wraps up this chapter. We've been investigating the implications, the nature, and the means of the resurrection. But what he wants us to do is live in light of this future hope. Persevere in gospel truth. Persevere in gospel work because Christ was raised from the dead and one day we will be too. So be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.